This morning we're going to cover uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 11, down through the first verse of chapter 7. It's probably an area of scripture, if you've been around church for a while, you've heard it a lot, you've heard it taught, but I'm willing to bet that you've probably never heard it taught in the context in which it was written, or in the context that Paul wrote it in. It's usually a lot of application in this scripture, but a lot of times the context seems to be missing. Perhaps the most difficult thing for a pastor to endure is to be falsely accused of something, or for anybody for that matter, or to have his integrity unfairly attacked, or to even have his words twisted and be presented as something that he didn't say or didn't mean. That's not just a pastor, that's for any one of us. That can be frustrating, that can be difficult, but that's exactly what's happening to the Apostle Paul with the church in Corinth. That's exactly what's taken place there. Paul had planted the church in Corinth, and after he left, false teachers came in among the congregation. They made false claims against Paul. They essentially destroyed his reputation, and they began to turn the people against the very man who had brought them the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, according to these false teachers, Paul, he was abusive. He was manipulative. And he didn't really love them or care about them. He was only out in it, only in it for himself. These false teachers, they weren't motivated by truth, love, and righteousness, which is what should be motivating them. No, they were motivated by hatred, by revenge, by bitterness, by jealousy, by self-promotion. They wanted to be the ones getting all the recognition. They wanted the people to forget about Paul and follow them. As a result, the relationship between the people of Corinth and the Apostle Paul, it was severely strained. In fact, it was almost destroyed. And you can see why. The Apostle Paul could have easily walked away at this point. He could have said, that's it. I don't, you guys don't want me. I've done all I can do. I'm out of here. I'm going to go minister where somebody will have me. I'm going to go minister where somebody will want me. But he doesn't. Instead, armed with his pen, Paul began to write letters and declare his love for them. And he began to write letters to teach them. He defended his integrity. He reminded them that he was the one that the Lord God Almighty had chosen to bring the gospel to Corinth. He was the one that God had put in their life to share the things about Jesus. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4, he wrote, For out of much affliction and anguish of heart... I wrote to you with many tears. Not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have so abundantly for you. If you were here when we studied 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul defended his love for them and he taught them what true love looked like. The great passage on love, 1 Corinthians 13, he showed them what agape love looked like. Paul reminded them of the trials that he had endured for their sakes. And of the tools that he had used when he was among them. Not fancy speech, plain words. He made it obvious, he made it open to them. He reminds them of the fruit the Lord had birthed in them as a result of the message Paul had delivered to them. He reminds them of all these things. But after Paul left, these false teachers came in. And after this happened, sin began to infect the lives of the Corinthians, the people in church, the church people. I know it's unbelievable. Sexual sin worked its way into the church. The people began to sue one another in court. The marriage covenant was being ignored completely. The church had moved from 
from self-denial to self-indulgence. No longer was following the Lord about denying myself, it was about indulging myself. Paul confronts these things head on in the book of 1 Corinthians. Initially, when the people began to receive these letters from him, they were a little taken back. They weren't sure what to do. They weren't sure how to handle it. They weren't receiving it very well. They didn't want to hear correction. Do you? No, none of us like to hear that kind of stuff. They began falling back on Paul's reputation. It had been tainted. What, what, what if what these people have said about him are true? And with that backstory, with that background of Paul's relationship to the church in Corinth, we can pick up in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 this morning as once again Paul will be open and honest with the people he loves so dearly in Corinth. Verse, follow along with me as I read from verse 11 down to verse 16. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 11. Paul says, O Corinthians, we have spoken openly to you. Our heart is wide open. You, have not, you, have, you are not restricted by us, but you are restricted by your own affections. Now in return for the same, I speak as to children, you also be open. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Balal? That's another name for Satan. Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. In verse 11, the Apostle Paul pleads with the Corinthians, O Corinthians, he says, We've spoken openly to you. Our heart is wide open. In spite of all the heartache the Corinthian Christians had caused Paul. In spite of all the broken hearts, Paul still loved them very much. He didn't give up on them. He reminds them. He says, I've always spoken openly to you. I, I never hid anything from you. I spoke honestly to you. That word there, open, it's honestly. I spoke honestly with you. There was nothing, there was no ulterior motive in what I shared. I spoke lovingly to you. Paul and his fellow workers had not lied or deceived the Corinthians, and he's telling them this. He said, our heart, our heart is wide open. Paul says, I've laid everything I have, everything I am on the line. I care so deeply about your salvation, so much about your growth in Jesus Christ. Everything I am, I've laid it out there for you. It's all for you to take. He's laid it there. There's nothing I did not teach you, nothing I kept back. I completely opened myself up to you. Isn't that how ministry should be done? That's how it should take place. And through all this, the Corinthians, they're having a hard time reconciling with Paul. He's getting a little bit of pushback at his corrections. Perhaps they wanted to reconcile. Perhaps they wanted to make things right with the apostle that had shared the gospel with them. But their minds have been polluted by the false teachers. You know, once you pollute your mind with something, it's hard to remove it. It doesn't completely go away. If you look at something you're not supposed to look, it sticks for a while, doesn't it? The pollution sticks. You've got to get clean. You've got to get washed. Their minds have been polluted by these false teachers. Paul's reputation had been tarnished. Maybe even they were thinking and saying things like, you know, Paul, we'd like to, we'd like to get right with you, but, but your words, are, they're, they're kind of harsh, don't you think? They're kind of rough. I mean, you said some pretty tough stuff in 1 Corinthians. I don't know if we, can, if we really can do that. You know, we want to, but it's hard, Paul. Well, then in verse 12, Paul tells them why it's hard. He tells them why they're having such a hard time. 
He tells them what's restricting them. He's going to tell them it's not my problem. It's your problem. Look at verse 12. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted by your own affections. I'm not the one restricting you, Paul says. Your own affections are restricting you. The word for restricted comes from a root word which means to make narrow or to confine. To make narrow or to confine, to restrict the flow of water. You could think going from a wide pipe to a narrow pipe. You're confining something, you're restricting something. The Corinthians believed their relationship with Paul had been confined by the apostle himself and those that were ministering with him. Paul's saying, not true. I'm not the one restricting you. My heart is wide open. I've shared everything with you. I've opened myself up to you. You, you, he would say. And I have to tell you that although we can, it's fun to look at Paul correct the Corinthians, it's also applicable to take his correction to the Corinthians and apply it to our own life if necessary. He said, you to them, you're being restricted by your own affections. You have squeezed me out of your life by letting the false teachers in. You've believed lies about me. You've left your affection to me and followed false teachers. And when I corrected you, you didn't really want to hear it. You weren't interested in really that. You, you, your, 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 your flesh was leading you. You're more concerned with the things of the flesh than you are for the things of the Lord. You've, false, you've followed these false teachers. You've believed the things they've said. Now it's causing a problem for the one carrying the truth to you. That's what Paul's addressing there. The Corinthian rejection of Paul. Can you imagine how deeply that would have hurt him? Can you imagine planting a church, raising people up in Christ, the Lord calling you away, and then everybody seemingly turning against you? All of a sudden, the other teachers come in behind you and say, no, no, he doesn't know what he's talking about. He doesn't really care about you. If he did, he, ha- he wouldn't have left. Whatever the reason is, they're, they're planting these lies, and people are not seeing it. They're believing it. The Corinthian rejection of Paul hurt deeply. But the amazing thing is, he never lost his affection for them. If someone rejects you, what's your natural response? Fine, be that way, who cares? You you, You immediately tend to lose their affection. Except for when it comes to a mother and her son, or a father and his daughter, or a parent to a child relationship. Those don't get lost immediately, but typically when someone rejects you, you, fine, you push them away. That's not what Paul did. Paul kept praying. Paul kept writing. Paul kept loving. Paul kept caring for them. Are the affections of your flesh robbing you of the promises of God? The blessings of God. The things of God. Are they restricting you from reconciling a relationship with someone who really loves you or who you really love and cares for you? You see, some of the affections of our flesh that can restrict us. Just a few. Pride. I'm not reconciling with them because they did something wrong to me. Paul had been wrong severely. Pride will keep you from that. Self-promotion, self-indulgence, money, financial gain, stubbornness. Any stubborn people in here? i got to raise my hand on that one. I can be stubborn sometimes. All kinds of things. A hard heart. All of those things. All of those fleshly affections will keep you from reconciling, and that's what Paul's telling the church there. The affections of your flesh, you're letting them keep you from reconciling with me. So look at what he does in verse 13. He says, now in return for the same, I speak 
as to children, I'm going to treat you like kids, you also be open. In other words, I was open, I want you to be open. Because, of, because you lost your affection for me, now I'm going to talk to you like little kids. I'm going to treat you like little kids. And I want you to be open to it. You see, Paul's asking, he wants the same self-searching honesty in the Corinthian Christians that he has just displayed to them. Someone who didn't care would have never wrote the letters back. They would have just walked away and gone on to the next thing. But he says, I searched my heart, and I'm sure he had to search his heart. He says, I've searched my heart, and I've realized I love you, and I care about you, and I'm writing to you. Now I want you to search your heart. And our reconciliation between me and you, it's now in your lap. It's up to you. It's not, I want to reconcile with you. Do you want to reconcile with me? Have you ever been in that position? Sure you have. If you've lived any more than a few years, you've had a reconciliation that needs to happen between all kinds of relationships, from an employee to a boss, husbands and wives. You don't have to be married very long to realize reconciliation has to come because separation comes quickly. It happens. We need that kind of stuff. And Paul's saying, my part, I'm here ready to reconcile. What about you? And the reason you're not ready to reconcile is because the affections of your flesh are keeping you from reconciling to me. You believed lies, is what Paul's saying. The false teachers came in, they took the truths I taught you, and they exchanged them with a lie. And you now, because you're stuck on this lie, if you would just go back and accept the truth, we can reconcile. I'm willing to do that. Same thing's true in our relationships. If you're here this morning and there's a relationship in your life that needs to be reconciled, is the affection of your flesh, is an affection of your flesh keeping you from doing that? Chances are, if you're not willing to reconcile, that's what it is. Find out which one it is and overcome it. As Paul tells them why they're not able to be reconciled, look at the command he gives them in verse 14. This, they've, we, we've covered what led them to this point. Now he tells them to keep, how to keep it from happening again. There in verse 14, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. We've heard that before. We've heard that taught of marriage, right? By following false teachers, the Corinthians had joined themselves. They had yoked themselves to unbelievers or to believers who were teaching partial truths, not to pastors or leaders who were teaching the truth. It was preventing their reconciliation to the Apostle Paul. Please take note that this is not a suggestion, but it's written there as a command. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Now this idea of yoking, it comes from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 10. It says, you shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. And in case you're not aware what a yoke is, it's this big wooden thing they would put over the, the neck and the shoulders of the animal. They would link two animals together so they would work together in unison with one another to provide an even, an even workload so they could plow straight furrows. If you had one weak animal and one strong animal, I don't know what, I imagine they'd go in circles because the stronger one would be going one way and the weaker one wouldn't be able to keep up. I don't know if that's true. I've never yoked an ox in my life. That would make sense to me though. But the Bible's likening this yoking together, this connection, this I'm going through this life together. I'm, 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 I'm doing these things together. We're yoked together. You see, the ox was seen as a clean animal. The donkey, he was an unclean animal. Believer, non-believer. A believer is clean because of the blood of Jesus Christ. A non-believer is not clean because their sins have not been forgiven because they haven't asked for it. They have... 
the donkey and the ox, they have two opposite natures. They wouldn't work well together. You couldn't put them together and expect them to work like two oxes or even two donkeys for that matter. They're opposite. They're different. It would be cruel to bind them together. In the same way, it would be wrong for believers to be yoked together with unbelievers. Well, Rob, none of us are going out today and plowing our fields with donks and ox, don- donkeys and oxes. So does it really apply to us today? Of course it does. We're not at odds with the Apostle Paul. We're not trying to reconcile with the Apostle Paul like they were. But isn't there opportunities in our lives to be yoked together, to be connected, to be hitched with unbelievers? Sure there are. How could it apply to us today? Most commonly, it's applied in marriage. It's marriage. We are told that we should not marry an unbeliever. Christians shouldn't marry unbelievers. Why not? Why is that? What's the big deal? How come it's not okay for a Christian to marry a non-Christian? Because they come from two different natures. It's like an ox and a donkey. They're two diff- they hold two different value systems. The Christian holds the Bible as the truth in their life, or at least they should. They should. The unbeliever doesn't really have any truth they hold on to, or they get to make up their own truth. So in other words, what's true today might not be true in five years, or 10 years, or 15 years, or even five months, or even five minutes for that matter, where the Christian looks and says, no, this is, this is the truth for my life. This is the plumb line. I'm good. What the Bible says is right is right. What the Bible says is wrong is wrong. Where the non-believer goes, well, it just depends on how I feel. Not, not, not so for the Christian. We hold the scripture in high regard. They don't. They hold whatever truth they want to. You see, the Christian looks to the Lord for guidance and direction. While the unbeliever, without the Lord, what do they look to? Their flesh, their intellect, their logic, whatever it is they think will make them their own affections, right? That's what they're looking to essentially, their own affections. Do you see how this can be a problem in a marriage? Oh, it might be okay at first. It might happen okay at first. But I have personally watched believers get caught up into relationships with unbelievers. And not to say that it never happens, but more often than not, do you know what the outcome is? The believer starts to slip away slowly from the Lord. You know, you know what we call it when, when a believer wants to get into a, a dating relationship with an unbeliever? You know what that's called? It's called missionary dating. And usually what you have is you have the Christian man or the woman who says, I'm going to get into that relationship and, and I'm going to convert them. I'm going to bring them to Jesus. Okay. How does that usually work out? Not very good. I can tell you, as, as a younger man, I was the object of some missionary dating. There was a couple of ladies that I had gone out with, and they, I, I wasn't a Christian, but they thought they could make me a Christian, and it didn't work out. But let me tell you another story. There's one young lady when I was in high school, right out of high school, about the year out, and she was a Christian. And we became friends. We became friends. And she wanted nothing to do with me in a dating relationship. And she flat out would tell me why. Because I wasn't a follower of Jesus Christ. To this day, her name was Lisa. Maybe she'll hear this someday. I don't know where she is. I don't know what's happened to her. I haven't seen her or heard from her in years. But as I sat and talked to Lisa, as I looked at Lisa's life, I met her parents. I, I began to examine her life and her values. I looked at the guy she's dating. and I thought, man, I'm much cooler than he is. But she didn't want anything to do with me. I have a cooler car than he does. It's got to be cooler. She wanted nothing to do with me other than to be a friend. 
I always ask her, what'd you do this weekend? I went to church. I went to church. And she'd tell me what they did at youth group. And she would tell me where they did. And all this kind of stuff. She was the first person to tell me about Calvary Chapel. She invited me to church. You want to go to church? No, I don't want to go to church. She invited me several times. You want to go to church with me? They're having some. No, no I don't want to go to church. No, thanks. Not, not into that. But do you know, although I never went to church with her, it was her invitation to Calvary Chapel, Fort Lauderdale, which in the very early stage, it was probably around 19, and I'm going to guess here, around 1990, 1989, 1990, in the very early stages of Calvary, Fort Lauderdale, they were meeting. She's the one that told me about Calvary Chapel. Four years later, I walked into a Calvary Chapel. Had lost contact with her by then. I don't know what happened to her today. I, I, wish, I, I wish I could. I'd like to say thank you. She has no idea that I'm a pastor. She has no idea that I'm a Christian. But she had a huge impact in my life. And it wasn't because she dated me and tried to convert me. It was because she wanted nothing to do with me. But she shared the gospel with me through the way that she lived her life. And I was impressed by that. And I walked into a Calvary Chapel four years after I was invited all by myself. Because she had told me about it. I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for her. Missionary dating doesn't, I won't say never, but it doesn't normally work. It doesn't normally work that way. While marriage is one application, I believe it goes much further. I think it can even be applied to our friendships or dating relationships, as I've said. And I'm not saying that Christians shouldn't be friends with unbelievers. But what I am going to say very, very clearly is we should not be yoked or connected to them the way that we would be to a believer. And let me explain the difference. When you have a casual friend, you're not yoked with them, you're just friends with them. You, you might talk to them at work, you might have, they might be in your class at school, There's just, they're just friends with you. When you have a friend that you are yoked with, they have an influence in your life. They can speak into your life. You'll go to for them for advice. You might even want to be like them. You might even be looking at them in a different light. There's a, there's a connection that goes deeper than just a casual friend. It's not that Christians shouldn't have non-believing friends. It's that we should be very, very careful who we yoke ourselves to. Ask yourself this question. Does being around this friend, does being in this relationship cause me to draw closer to the Lord or is it pulling me further apart? If it's pulling you further apart, the chances are you're unequally yoked. And you need to do something about it. If you're being pulled away, get out of it. But I also believe you can be unequally yoked in business. In a business relationship. Because when two people enter into a business agreement, what are they doing? They're yoking themselves together. One believer has one set of values. An unbeliever has another set of values. And they might say, well, no, no, he's a good person or she's a good person. They're, they're, they're good people. Yes, but as a believer, my values are set. Theirs are not. It's easy to be a good person on a good day. What happens on a bad day? What happens when you have a chance to steal from somebody? Or to take something that doesn't belong to you. And the Christian goes, no, I would never do that. Why? Stealing's wrong. No one's going to know. It's a big corporation. They're not going to miss that little bit of money. They're not going to miss that, that, that. Come on. Do you see how that can be a problem in business? I personally have walked away from some good business opportunities for this very reason. I've looked at the people that I would be involved with and said, I'm not doing it. I, I'm okay with this one. I'm okay with this one. Not that one. Therefore, I'm out. I've had to say no to some things. I need to share something with you. This is in no way a burden from the Lord. What it is, it's a protection. 
You see, we can get the idea and look at this and go, well, unequally, you know, God just doesn't want me to have any fun. He, doesn't want, he wants me to be closed-minded. No, no, he wants to protect you from something. When my kids were little, we had these little plastic covers you put in the outlets. You ever have those? You can't get those things out. I still have them. They're stuck there. I can't get them out. Why do we put them there? Because I know the kids' tendencies. What's their tendencies? To take little metal objects and stick them in there. I know that's their tendency. Don't you think the Lord knows our tendencies too? And when he says, do not be unequally yoked to an unbeliever, it's not so that he can be restrictive. Or he is restricting, but it's in a loving, protecting way. Not in a way, I just don't want you to have any fun. It's not that way at all. He says, I care about you so much. I don't want you to stick your finger in that light socket and get shocked. If you just do it my way, it would work out much better for you. The Lord is protecting us when he says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Listen to how Paul explains it a little further in detail. I like this. He says, for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? What communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. The answer to these questions is obvious. There is no fellowship between righteousness and lawless. You can't have light and darkness at the same time. They don't exist. Darkness is simply the absence of light. You can't, it's light and dark in here at the same time. No, it's either light or dark. It could be lighter or darker, but you can't have one. They're mutually exclusive. They don't exist together. That's what Paul's saying here. You can't have an agreement between the temple of God and idols. It doesn't work that way. Paul reminds us there, and it's important that he's reminding them and he's reminding us that we are the temple of the living God. Did you know that this morning when you came in here? You know, I thought I came into the temple. No, this is the church. This is a building. This is, yeah, this is where we meet together to, to study things of God, study the word and we to worship. But the dwelling place is inside of you. You and I, we're the temple of the living God. He dwells inside of us, not in this building, in the people. That, the old temple, the, the Hebrew temple, that's where he dwelt. In Jerusalem, the tabernacle, that's where the presence of God dwelt. He left there. He's not there anymore. Oh, the scriptures tell us he'll return someday. But right now, he's dwelling inside of us. Now, I want you to pay particular attention to the words Paul uses. He asked, what fellowship, what communion, what accord, that word for accord, agreement or harmony, what part and what agreement? Accord. It comes from the word symphonesis. It's where we get our English word for symphony. You know what a symphony is? Musical stuff, right? The symphony is going to play. Can you imagine every instrument in an entire symphony playing whatever they wanted to do without accord or without agreement? Can you imagine what that would sound like? Completely disregarding the director, just playing whatever part they liked best. Whatever my part is, whatever I like best, that's what I'm going to play. What a disaster that would be. But when there is fellowship, when there is communion, when there is accord and agreement, and everybody does their parts, how does it sound? Beautiful. It makes beautiful music. You see, this speaks of our lives. The Lord, he's the director. He's setting the tempo. He's setting the beat. As a believer, I'm playing and walking to his tempo. As a non-believer, I'm on a different page. I'm not following him. I'm following me. I'm following whatever I want. I'm not listening to the same director. If that case comes, 
where you link a believer and an unbeliever. It might work out for a short time, but eventually it leads to disaster. You can't continue in that direction. You see, God's desire for his people, they're found in these words. He wants us to have fellowship and communion with each other. He wants us to enjoy accord or agreement and harmony as we walk together in this Christian life. Don't ruin it by joining yourself to an unbeliever. Don't take away the the beauty and the glory of what God says, I want to give you by joining yourself with friends who are unbelievers. Perhaps joining yourself to a husband or a wife or getting into a dating relationship. Now, if you're married, you're stuck, i got to tell you. Just make that clear. If anybody's going, well, all right, I can get out of this marriage. No, 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 no. You're stuck. You should have read this before you got married. But before we, oh, this is really cool. I want you to notice the stark difference between the believer and the unbeliever. Because we have a tendency to make that line kind of blurry, don't we? But the Lord here, in Paul, in these words, he, he uses certain words to describe a believer, and he uses certain words to describe an unbeliever. And we have a tendency as human beings to go, well, you know, they're a good person. They're this, but I want you to listen carefully. The words used to describe the unbeliever, here they are. Lawlessness, darkness, belial, which means Satan, and unbeliever. Now, these are the words that Paul uses to describe those who believe. Are you ready? Righteousness, light, Christ, and the believer. Do you see the difference? What a difference. You see, we have a tendency to think there's not a difference, but there's a huge difference. Those who believe in Jesus Christ, we're righteous. We're light, the salt and light of the earth. We're like Jesus. We're being made like him. We're believers. The unbelievers, there's lawlessness. Why? Because they have no truth that they hold to. They have nothing. They, they, they just adjust the law to make themselves look good and whatever they feel like. Darkness, Satan, unbelievers. Now, before we move on to the next section, I want to be perfectly clear. Paul is not saying that believers should not have non-Christian friends. He's not saying that at all. What he is saying is that Christians should not be joined to unbelievers. They should not be yoked to unbelievers. They should not date unbelievers. They should not marry unbelievers. They should not enter into business or partnership with unbelievers. Or they should not allow an unbeliever in any position of their life where they will have influence over them to be able to pull them away from the truths that they hold. Don't make the mistake of thinking, I can't have any non-Christian friends. That's not true. But you're not going to allow those non-Christian friends to take a role in your life that should be filled by a believing friend. Because what happens is, as you, get, you find yourself in a problem, and you go to the person that you think is going to give you the advice that you want to hear. That's where we don't let a non-believing friend come in. Well, what do you think I should do? My marriage is kind of bad. The non-believer says, well, get divorced. Everyone else does. The believing Christian friend says, you need to start praying. You need to start looking at yourself. You need to start seeking the things of God. You see the difference? We can't allow non-believers to be the ones influencing us. And after reminding them that they were the temple of God, Paul tells them what that means. Look there. He says, and God has said. God has said. These are promises. God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Here Paul quotes from the prophets Isaiah and Ezekiel. Now when this was written, it was written to the nation Israel as they were leaving Babylonian captivity. They were, they were leaving captivity, they were going back to the land. But the spiritual significance 
is that God wants his people, and that's us as well, to know that we are to be separate from the world. We are to come out of the world. The worst thing anybody can ever say to you is, I didn't know you were a Christian. You don't have to be odd for God and be weird and crazy and, and, and loopy. But they should never say to you, I had no idea. You, you, don't, you don't talk like a Christian. You don't go to church. You don't know anything. There's no, there's no, I've never, you, they come over to your house. There's no, you know, it's, your life looks no different than theirs. That, that's the worst thing that someone could say. The spiritual significance is we are to come out of the world. And again, I want you to know something. This is not a suggestion. God commands that his people come out. He says, come out. This implies that there is some sort of physical act or decision that we make as Christians where we say, I'm going to separate myself from the things of the world. It has nothing to do with salvation. Salvation is earned at the cross. We don't have to contribute to that anything other than to accept it. But there comes a point in the Christian life where we say, I need to separate myself from the things that I once did. The Holy Spirit will begin to convict and you have a choice to make. You can have a decision to make. Separation is not just a negative act of departure. It's not just me walking away. Oh, I got to walk away from the bar. I can't go there anymore. Poor me. No, no, you're not just leaving something. You're fleeing to something. It's, an act, it's, it's, it's a departing of a here, but it's a uniting over there with Christ. It's you're leaving behind the things of the world, but I'm plugging myself in closer and deeper with my Lord. The Lord God Almighty is our Father, it says. As Christians, we are his sons and his daughters, and he wants us to be fully devoted to him. As a dad or a mom, how would you feel if your kids go, well, I don't really need you as a mom, parent, I got someone else over here. They're, they're, the neighbors are better parents than you are, so I'm just going to go hang out with them, okay? Good, take the bills with you. You would be crushed. But, I, but I've poured into you. But, I, but, but you came from us. You, you, but, wait a minute, I'm paying the food bills in this house. You, 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 there's, there's this thing that goes on that, no, I, this is the way the Lord feels about it. He's done so much for us. He wants us to, to be fully devoted to us. And he warns us about defilement. He says, do not touch what is unclean. Don't touch what is unclean. Isn't it amazing that we know what's unclean? I don't need to stand here and explain it to you. All right, Rob, what's unclean? You already know what's unclean. You already know it. I don't have to tell you. If I was to make a list of the things that are unclean, you'd be listening carefully going, I hope he doesn't say my thing. I hope he doesn't say mine. Oh, he didn't say mine. Good, I'm good this morning. No, but see, I know the Holy Spirit. As I say unclean, the Holy Spirit knocks on your heart and goes, yep, that thing. That thing right there in your heart is what I'm working on this morning. I know how that works. You know why? Because it works the same way with me. As I study, as I read, the same thing happens. The Old Testament Jew was defiled if he touched a dead body or even a festering sore. They became unclean. And of course, as Christians today, we don't become, we don't contract this sort of spiritual defilement by touching something. But the principle is the same. We must not associate with those things which will compromise our testimony or lead us into disobedience. We must not associate with those things that are going to compromise my witness or that are going to lead me in disobedience. Do you know that there's little things? In, do you know that the radio stations, not, not our radio station, we're not going to lead you in disobedience, but there's certain radio stations, if you listen to them, it'll lead you into disobedience. I found that in my life. Every once in a while, I'll go back to, to, I'll go back to secular radio and I'll start listening to some songs that I used to listen to. You know what I find myself going? 
right back to a sinful time in my life. It leads me into defilement. It leads me a place I shouldn't go. I gotta go, so I'm, not, I'm not going there. I've done it many times. I, I'm sad to say it. Then, you know, a few months ago, I'll try it again. Maybe it won't work. Maybe it won't happen this time. Lord, forgive me. You know, but there's things in our lives that will lead us that way. By the way, it's nothing new. Throughout Scripture, God has commanded his people to be separate, hasn't he? He commanded them to be separate. He warned Israel not to mingle with the pagan nations of the land of Canaan. Yet they disobeyed his word, and they were punished before it. That's what landed them in captivity, both the Assyrian for the northern tribes and the Babylonian captivity for the southern tribes. The prophets repeatedly ple- they, they begged the people to forsake their, earthen, their heathen idols, earthen idols, and devote themselves to the Lord. Even Jesus rejected the false separation of the Pharisees as he warned the disciples against the leaven of the religious leaders. Be separate. Jesus even prayed in John 17 that his disciples would be kept from defilement because he knew there was so much defilement that can happen in a believer's life. He was aware of the temptations. He was aware of the things they were going to face. The Corinthian church, they were compromising with the world. So Paul appealed to them. He said, separate yourself. Through the, pages of the, through, the, through the words of the prophets, he said, separate yourselves from the things of the world. Separate yourselves. Unfortunately, I have to mention this, some Christians take this too far. They think separate yourself means I've got to go live in an island by myself somewhere. I can't have any other friends besides Christian friends. They've taken it too far. They've become so separate that they no longer associate with anybody who's not a believer. They've turned separation into isolation. They've become isolated because they've separated, and somehow they think that's what God wants. That's not what God intended. Listen Listen to how one commentator explained it. He said this. It is unfortunate that the important doctrine of separation has been misunderstood and abused in recent years. For an essential truth, some sincerely zealous Christians have turned separation into isolation until their fellowship has become so narrow that they cannot even get along with themselves. In reaction to this extreme position, other believers have torn down all the walls and will have fellowship with anybody. Regardless of what he believes or how he lives, While we applaud their desire to practice Christian love, we want to remind them that even Christian love must exercise discernment. As you sit here this morning, are you separate from the world? Are there things in your life that the Lord is knocking on your heart saying this is what you need to separate from? Is there something in particular? Is there something that's defiling you? Are you unequally yoked in a relationship? Is there something that, as we read these pages of Scripture, it's convicting me? That would bring you to the question of, well, what do I do now? Chapter 7, verse 1 gives us that answer. Therefore, in light of what I've taught you, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Paul says, in light of what I've just told you, you have these promises. What promises do we have, Paul? God says he will dwell with us and walk among us. That I will be their God and they will be my people. God said, don't touch what is unclean and I'm going to receive you. 
He says, I will be your father and you shall be my sons and daughters. This is what the Lord God Almighty said, my part is. I'll walk with you. I'll be among you. You will be my people. But I need you to separate yourself from that thing. By the way, the word almighty, it literally means the one who has his hand on everything. It only occurs here and in the book of Revelation. The two places it occurs in the scripture. Paul wants us to understand that it is the sovereign God of heaven who's offering us adoption as his children as we separate unto him. But it's a decision we must make. You have to make it. You have to decide. The moment you decide, you have the power to do it. I can't do it. Yes, you can. You have to decide you don't want to do it. Then you'll have the power to do it. Paul is not talking here about salvation. He's talking about dwelling with the Lord. He's talking about growing in a relationship with the Lord. He makes the promises to us, but we have an obligation to respond. What does he say? Let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Two things he tells us to do right there. Two things. In light of God's promises, he says, number one, cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and the spirit. Cleanse yourself. Number two, perfect holiness in the fear of God. You see, there's a cleansing that God alone does in our lives at salvation. But there's also a cleansing that happens after salvation that he wants to do in cooperation with you and I. Yes, you can be saved and never cleanse yourself of the things of the world. Now, certainly we would question your salvation because there's no change in your life. But there's a point that after you get saved, people always ask me, what do I do next? Listen to the Holy Spirit. Because he's going to tell you what to do next. I don't give you a list of Christian rules to follow. All right, now you must wear a collared shirt and you have to do morning devotions. And No, listen to what the Lord tells you because he's going to start in the place that's most important. I'm going to start in the place that's most obvious. And sometimes what's most important isn't seen on the outside because the Lord looks at the heart and guess what I can only see? The outside. But he can look at the inside. I can say your problem is this and he can say, oh no, your problem is unforgiveness in your heart. Your problem is you're chasing after the things of the flesh. I, I, can, I can only look on the outside. We can only look on the outside towards each other. But he will look on the inside. Paul writes about a cleansing that isn't just something that God does for us as we sit passively on the couch. Lord, change me. I will. I did. Change yourself now. I've given you the power to change. No, I want you to do it, Lord. Give me some of that pixie dust. Make it change instantly. I've given you the power. Now walk in it. I've, I've broke the chains of bondage. Now believe it and continue life in it. Walk it. Don't, don't put the chains back on. Don't pick them back up. There's a self-cleansing. And when we begin this process, do you know what happens? It's what allows us to draw closer to the Lord. You ever, been, you ever been to the place where I want, I want a closer relationship with the Lord? How do I get that? Cleanse yourself. People have said to me, I, I don't have the kind of relationship that you have. After this message, I'm going to start saying, have you cleansed yourself? Go cleanse yourself. But what, what is it in your life that's keeping you? Are you obedient to what God is saying? I want to remove this from your life. Why? So that, I can, so, so that you can hear me clearer, so that you can draw closer to me, so your worship of me will be sweeter, so I can use you in a greater capacity. Cleanse yourself. Adam Clark put it this way. He said, how can those expect God to purify their hearts who are continually indulging their eyes, ears, and hands in what is forbidden? And what tends to increase and bring into action all the evil propensities of our soul. 
If you're continually indulging of the things that brings out the evil in your soul, the, the evil in your flesh, how can you expect to draw closer to the Lord? You can't. That's what, that's what he's saying here. People say it to me, I wish I knew the Lord the way you do. Have you cleansed yourself from the things that God has asked you to remove from your life? I can remember in my walk with the Lord from the day I started until now, it continues. I, I'm not saying I'm done. Please don't misunderstand. But I can list things that he's cleansed me of. Bad language. I remember the day that he told me to never watch a rated R movie again. I remember the movie I was watching that we walked out of. We were sitting in a movie theater watching a movie, and we were like, I looked at my wife, and we can't watch this. This, is, this, this, this doesn't work for us anymore. We left. I realized I'm never watching a rated R other than The Passion of the Christ. I'm like, I'm not watching rated R movies anymore. I, I'm cleansing myself of that. I remember when he told me to cleanse myself of pornography and other sins. It's been one after another. And let me be honest and clear. It doesn't happen in a moment sometimes. It's hard sometimes. It's a struggle sometimes. It's not, it's not gonna, you're not going to necessarily do it in a day. But each time, guess what? I had a choice, and so do you. Each time I had a choice, am I going to choose to follow him? Lord, this is where you're working in my life now. Or am I going to go, nah, everybody else does it. It's okay. Am I going to go, oh, it's not that bad. Listen, my sins aren't that bad. I don't do, that. nah, come on. Compared to everybody else, I'm doing fine. Each time I had a choice, it wasn't always easy. Sometimes it might have even taken years, but each decision to cleanse myself brought me closer to the Lord. He'll do the same thing for you. But you've got to make the choice. You've got to be willing to say, as the Lord knocks on your heart and says, I want you to cleanse yourself of this, you have to say, yes, Lord. I'll do that. And if you fail tomorrow, you go back and cleanse yourself again. And if you fail next week, you go back and cleanse yourself again. But you remove that thing that he wants to cleanse you from your life. And what you'll find out is the longer we walk with the Lord, the more sensitive you're going to become to sin. The longer you walk. The things that I would look at in one point in my life, like I have no problem watching or listening to or hearing, now they would bother me. You become more sensitive to sin. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. He said, I suppose that the nearer we get to heaven, the more conscious we shall be of our imperfections. The more light we get, the more we discover our own darkness. That which is scarcely accounted sin by some men will be a grievous defilement to a tender conscience. Is that not true? It is not that we are greater sinners as we grow older, but that we have a finer sensibility of sin. And see that to be sin which we winked at in the days of our ignorance. We used to wink at it, no big deal. And the closer you grow to the Lord, the more you realize, wow, I'm really undone. I'm re I really need the grace of God. I have two final thoughts before we close. I want you to notice Paul uses the word we. We. He's referring to himself there. We. We need to cleanse ourselves. And I also want you to notice he used the word yourself it's not for you to cleanse somebody else it's not for you to elbow a husband or a wife or maybe even give this cd so they need to hear it it's for you we need to cleanse ourselves who do we cleanse ourselves i know that as i prepare and teach a message like this i know that as i talk about cleansing yourself and not being unequally yoked i know the holy spirit is at work 
And if the Holy Spirit has knocked on your heart this morning and said, hey, there's something I need to cleanse you of. Maybe you don't need to get saved. You've been saved for years. But there's something in your life that I need you to cleanse yourself of. I need you to lay it down. I need you to leave it here. I need you to put it aside. It needs to end today. I would ask that you respond. We're going to play one more song. And I would ask that that you just stay seated. Let's stay seated for the next song, for the last song. Usually we stand up. Let's just stay seated. And if you need to go to the Lord in prayer quietly during this last song, and you need to cleanse yourself of something. If, if he's been, and I know how it goes because I've sat there. It sounds like he's yelling at me when I'm sitting out there and it needs to happen. It's not like he's screaming at you. And it's like, who told this guy that, I, that this is my problem? I've been there, I know. But you see, that problem is between you and the Lord. You go to your creator in prayer and you say, Lord, Lord, I've fallen. I, I, I failed to listen to you. I, there's something in my life that you're telling me needs to change, and I, and I haven't done it this morning. Let today be the day that you make your promise between you and him. Lord, forgive me. You repent of it, which means turn away from it. And you leave it here in this place. Because he loves us so much, he went to the cross that says, I can leave here free. Whatever burden you walked in with, you can, leave, you can drop off here. What a beautiful promise that is. So I'm going to pray, and when I'm done, they're going to play one more song. Stay seated, and just take the last song, and if you need to pray with the Lord, pray. If you want to sing, sing. It's up to you. But let's just go before the Lord on this last song. Lord, we just come before you, and we know your Holy Spirit is powerful, and we know that he's at work. And Lord, if he's been at work in our hearts this morning, if there's that one thing that we've, well, maybe it's been a long time we've struggled with it. Maybe it's something that needs to lay down. Maybe whatever it is, Lord, may we drop it off this morning at your feet. May we nail it to the cross. Lord, we understand that cleansing ourselves draws us closer to you. Maybe we've been kind of dry. We haven't been hearing from you. Maybe there's a, it's a result of not being cleansed. So, Father, as we take the steps, would you just meet us in this few moments of prayer? Would you lead us? In Jesus' name, amen.